friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. Today, I am so excited to share another edition of our popular Ask the Doctor episodes, which feels very appropriate to the time that we're living in. If you're new here, the Ask the Doctor series was built around the idea that these incredible doctors have so much genius information about transforming our mental and physical health, but the really great ones can be hard to find, tricky to get appointments with, and unfortunately, very expensive. So on these episodes, I invite on the people in the world who are the absolute best in their fields, and I ask them all of my questions and yours about a topic. We have Ask the Doctor episodes about happiness, dental health, busting weight loss myths, hormones, longevity gut health, anxiety, skincare, and more. So definitely check those out if you're interested in those topics. Today is all about stress. My guest today is Dr. Samantha Boardman, who did her undergrad at Harvard, very fancy, before getting her MD at Cornell and then going back for a master's in applied positive psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. She now has a thriving psychiatry practice in New York City and a brand new book called Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength, which is available wherever books are sold. I wanted to make this the most comprehensive episode ever about stress and to leave you equipped and empowered to tackle the causes of stress in your own life. We get into what stress actually is, what causes it, the two most restorative experiences as shown by clinical studies, how to deal with real-life stressful situations like working a job that you hate or having a chronic illness, science-backed ways to relieve stress in five minutes or less, the daily practices that we should all incorporate to keep our stress levels low, how to stop doom scrolling and develop a less stressful relationship with the news. This was very helpful for me. I have already incorporated Dr. Boardman's advice about this, and it has made a huge difference. How to become comfortable with uncertainty. That was another one that like spoke, <laughs> spoke to my soul. An easy mindset shift to feel way calmer about politics, how stress can impact weight gain, and how to mitigate that, how to deal with stress caused by family relationships, how to help family members that are stressed, better ways to deal with eco-anxiety, and so much more. I have already started incorporating a lot of these principles, like I mentioned, that Dr. Boardman shares in this episode, and truly, truly, I cannot say this enough, they're life-changing. Like, at least once a day, I'll be like, I'll do something, just like I'll tweak what I'm doing a little bit and I'll be like, oh my gosh, thank you, Dr. Boardman. This is so much better. And I can already feel these little tweaks accumulating and I feel more peaceful. I feel more equipped to deal with the little challenges that just come with like being a person in the world these days. I would love to see any changes that you're making or thoughts that you're thinking as you're listening. So please share on social and tag both of us. I am at Liz Moody and Dr. Boardman is at positive underscore prescription. And if this is your first episode of the podcast, welcome. This is a comfy and safe space where we talk about feeling our absolute best in every aspect of our lives, whether it's dealing with our stress or making our skin glow. Yes, I have the much requested skincare sessions episode where I talk to a derm about all of your questions and 
crazy treatments and products and all that that is coming up soon. So remember to subscribe so you don't miss that or next week's episode, which is the very first edition of How I Got My Dream Job, which is a new series that I'm starting and I have a New York Times bestselling novelist on the very first episode, which reminds me, oh my gosh, I just said next week's episode. I can't believe I forgot to tell you this news. We are finally switching to weekly episodes. I know that you've all been requesting this for so long, but to be honest, I was just like nervous about taking on the workload. But this year, I finally got a long overdue manager. And honestly, I just realized that the podcast is my absolute favorite part of my job. And I wanted to start giving it the proper priority. I've already been so lucky to have gotten this huge and lovely community that we have here. But to be totally honest, I'm just going to say it. I want it to grow even bigger so that I can devote even more of my time to it and I can reach even more people with these messages and be able to get on whatever guests I want. So weekly episodes start now. They will be out every single Wednesday from now on. And if you would like to celebrate the transition with me and help me lean into what we will call the year of expansion, I would so appreciate if you took a few minutes to share the podcast, either as a whole or an individual episode that would resonate with anyone in your life. I would be so massively appreciative if every single person listening shared the podcast with just one other person, we would double the size of it literally today, which is like absolutely crazy to think about. You could even share this episode because like, I feel like everybody knows somebody who's stressed and if you don't, who are you and where do you live and how, 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 just tell me how. Jokes aside, I just want to take a really quick second to say thank you to every single person who's listening right now. I know a lot of you have been here for years since I was doing this on the side and working as an editor full time. And no matter when or how you found me, you listening and being open to diving deep and learning and asking hard questions and just hanging out with me here, you're the reason that this is my job and that I can have these conversations and share this knowledge. And it means so, so much to me. And I appreciate all of you more than I can ever express. And I've just been reflecting a lot lately on how lucky I am and how grateful I am to all of you as I'm taking this next step. And so, I don't know, just thank you, truly thank you from the bottom of my heart. Okay, enough mush, enough feelings. Let's get into Ask the Doctor Stress Edition with the amazing Dr. Samantha Boardman. All right, Dr. Boardman, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm very excited about this episode and I know that my audience is too. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Ah, um, Okay. Well, let's start with like the beginning. I was actually really surprised by how many people wrote in and were like, what is stress? Like, how do I know if I'm stressed? Well, it's a really good question. And oftentimes, we're the last to know when we're stressed out. It's usually people who are close to us who know who know better than we do. You know, the funny thing about stress is in a way, it gets a really bad name because there is such a thing as good stress. And when, you know, we are being sort of pushed in a positive way to do our best and our limits. You think of an athlete, you know, there's positive stress that actually can help us sort of be like, you know, it really enables optimal performance. But it's when we sort of go to the other side of that curve and we're super stressed out and our stress isn't just acute to something that stresses us out. If you think about like a gazelle who 
is stressed out because she's been chased by a lion. But when she goes back to the watering hole and she's hanging out with her fellow gazelles, she's not still thinking about how traumatic that was, that they're able to turn it off. And I think one of the like the problem with chronic stress is, you know, we, we're not able to flip that switch. So that thing that sort of stressed us out this morning or on our commute is staying with us all day. And um, that I think is the is a more chronic form of stress can be really, you know, takes a toll on our physical and mental health. And sometimes we think about the big stressors in life that take the like the, you know, the biggest toll, like those big life events. But actually, it's this accumulation of little stressors and hassles in an everyday way that can take the biggest toll on our physical health and mental health. And that's really why I wrote this book is I wanted to help us develop what I think of as little R resilience, like the resilience to help us manage like the daily grind, the hassles of day-to-day living. Is the problem that we don't have like a chill watering hole, like we don't have that come down tools or that come down place, or is the problem that we have more and more accumulating stressors or both? I think it's both. I think we really don't do very well with that sort of dialing it down. And I mean, that watering hole, if it's the bar or like your sofa and or doom scrolling on your phone, like those are not probably, you know, obviously they're, they're counterproductive, you know, and I think of those as like vampires of vitality. But it's, it's it, like, you know, I think we have to think of like, and also our own personal like resources, like when we're exhausted, we're feeling overworked or burned out, we are not eating well, we're not sleeping well, we're not moving our bodies in any way. I think that kind of like that also amplifies that stress. And the irony and sort of the cruelty of all of this is we often do the exact opposite of the thing that would help us feel strong. Mm, What do you mean by that? It, it, It sort of amplifies our stress. Like after a long day and we're exhausted or you know, a bunch of things have gone wrong and those hassles are with us. That's exactly when you, you know, decide not to go to the gym uh, or you think, oh, you know what? I'm just going to, I deserve this bucket of ice cream. I'm just yeah. going to stay up late and watch that series and like, you know, go through eight episodes and blow through that and go to bed at three in the morning. That kind of, you know, that type of coping strategy that kind of maybe might in the moment kind of hold this illusion mm. of being something that's going to be restorative, but it's actually the opposite. And I think it's why sometimes even after a weekend, when we sort of spent a lot of it in bed and, you know, not really done anything, we almost have like guilty couch potato syndrome. Like we just sort of feel more depleted. That's something that I struggle with personally a ton is I'm like, am I giving myself me time, relaxation time that I need when I'm, you know, like after a hard day, I go to TikTok and I just like scroll on TikTok for an hour and I'm like, I needed this. I deserve this. All of the things you just said. Um, but it, I, I struggle with like, is that a good permission to give myself or am I harming myself far more in the long run by doing this? Yeah, no, well, that, I mean, that's the thing. I think as long as you can time limit it is the key, you know, like, I think that's what's really essential is if you can, at least in your, like, you know, some people like I, at the end of like the day, I think they just need to be like, you know what, I just need 20 minutes of this, or I need to, you know, vent for a little while, or I need to do that one thing. I know it's probably not the best thing, but I, that's sort of what I crave. It's my cotton candy. But then I'd say like, okay, but what are you going to do after that? Yeah. I think it is, it's hard to like limit yourself. You know what I mean? It's just like, but then you're just tired and you're like, okay, I've, I've been on TikTok for three hours and now I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> well, I, oh yes. And that's the thing. It's like that slippery slope, you know, of just 
feeling worse and worse. And then, you know, you're even more depleted, you're more exhausted. And then you end up even making another unhealthy choice because you're sort of feeling badly about yourself then too, you know? So I've often like tell people like, you know, maybe think about like whatever you want to do, make the behaviors that you want to do easier to do. Like if it is that you want to go to the gym, then it is, you know, have your gym bag packed or, if you want to go for a walk, have a friend waiting there for you. And if you're not, you know, you'll feel like such a flake if you don't show up, you know, because even though you might like in your head in the morning, you want to go by like six o'clock in the evening, you're like, oh, I just want to cancel. There's nothing I'd rather not do than do that. But I think when you're, when you feel like you have to do that, then you, th- th- when you feel obligated in a good way, it's a good thing. Another, you know, recommendation for that is what's called temptation bundling. And when you pair the thing that you don't really want to do with something you really enjoy doing. Like, so that could be listening to your favorite podcast when you go to the gym and only when you go to the gym, you know, so you're, you get to do something that feels good with something that might be a little bit harder to want Mm. to do. I've been doing that with podcasts and working out and it helps so much. It just like, it's like, why was I just sitting here being bored and tired and angry (laughs) the whole time when I could be listening to something that was really entertaining and it makes the time go so much faster. It's so true. And when you kind of treat yourself almost with that, it just, I think the the drudgery of it Mm. feels like less, less bad. And actually then once you start doing it and you really just get over that activation energy of like actually physically getting to the gym or putting your sneakers on or whatever that thing is, you know, then, then you're like, okay, this is good. You know, I've got this. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of temptation bundling. Is there something that you would recommend we do to, like the forms of dealing with stress or like treating ourselves or whatever that are less good for us, maybe like you mentioned, sitting and eating a whole ton of ice cream or um, doom scrolling on TikTok or Instagram, those are designed to be more tempting to us. They're designed to be really hooky. They're designed to be really um, compelling and addictive. I mean, truly addictive. They're they're wired to be addictive. So are there ways that you recommend dealing with that pull. You know what I mean? Because it's just like, it's so hard to overcome, especially at the end of the day when I have no willpower left in my body anymore. No, I mean, and it is is this gravitational force pulling you in that place. And look, I think we're all vulnerable to it. And it happens to all of us, you know, more often than we care to admit. But there are ways, I think, to override that temptation. And here's like what I sometimes recommend to patients is, you know, make that behavior you want to do easier, which whatever that, you know, as we said, the gym bag, I have one patient who always puts her jog bra first thing like in the morning. And so in her mind, she's much more likely to actually, you know, go to the gym or go for a run after work. The other thing though, that you can do is, you know, just make that thing that you, that you don't want to do harder. Like it is, it might be just turning off your phone when you get home or putting it in another room. So you just can't in that like moment of weakness, reach for it when you would be checking for it. Another thing that I actually find to be really helpful is even when I go for a walk, I don't bring my phone with me and I leave it at home deliberately and I'm out for an hour or whatever out in nature. And I'm less tempted to even look at it. And and that, that, you know, I think every moment I'm looking at my phone, that's sort of taking away from even being outside. So, you know, I think make the thing that you want to do easier and make the thing that you don't want to do a little bit harder. And another way I think to hopefully, you know, that I think is helpful for some of my patients and for me too, is to think about in those sort of stressed out moments, 
like, what's the unme thing to do right now? Because sometimes, you know, we're always being told, like, be yourself, trust your feelings. But actually, there are like a range of versions of ourselves. And there's the the version that's, you know, adhering to our values and really yeah. living them. And then there's, there's the other version that's like, hand me that bucket of ice cream and where's the remote <laughs> control. So I think when we can be unused sometimes, or even think of somebody who you would really admire, what would mm. they do in this moment? Um, you know, and it can kind of, I think, help you override, you know, and kind of close that gap between your intentions and your actions. Because, you know, it's not just that we feel worse or more exhausted. I think when we're not doing the thing that we want to do, um, it actually is also like super depleting. And so there's some research from NYU about creating what's known as WOOP goals, W-O-O-P. And so th- there, there's, there's like four steps to this. So the W stands for what's your wish? Like is your wish spending, you know, less time on your phone or more quality time with your family? And then the first O is what would be the outcome of that? Like, you know, how would you really feel if you were to do this? And then the next O is what's the obstacle getting in the way? And, you know, like really be really specific and pinpoint what that obstacle is. Like, oh, well, it's just in my pocket or I just can reach for it or whatever. Okay, now what is your plan to override that? And I think just when you can create whoop goals for yourself, you're much more likely to persevere and follow through. And then also you're going to feel so much better because you're sort of, you know, doing the thing that you want to be doing. And you're also going to just feel a whole lot better because of it. I love that. I'm going to try that for sure. Is there um, something that's like clinically shown to be really relaxing, like the opposite of that feeling of when you've sort of laid around all weekend and you don't feel restored at the end? Is there anything that like, like our baths actually really relaxing is reading a book? What are the best forms of relaxation? I would say like the most restorative like experiences we can create for ourselves is really two. It's being in nature. It's unbelievable the benefits that that has. I mean, I think the Japanese word for that is forest bathing. And we all have like nature deficit disorder and that we don't spend enough time in nature. And they say that kids who walk through like a green space getting to school, they have their, they are able to pay attention more in school that, you know, there aren't complaints about them having attentional challenges that just being outdoors also has this unbelievable ability to interrupt rumination. And, you know, rumination is that horrible experience that often like many of us share that is that like constant, it's like our own doom scrolling in our mind, you know, like, why did I do this? Why did I say that? Why didn't I do this? And when we're just sort of doing that repeated um, self-flagellation around um, like things that have happened or even our concerns about what might happen. And rumination can be, you know, an on-ramp to anxiety and to depression. And one of the best ways to interrupt it, though, is by being in nature looking at natural language studies, people who are in the middle of a park have the same amount of sort of joy that they are, um, that they express as they, as people do on Christmas day. So I think that we, we really underestimate how much nature is restorative for all of us. Even we know from studies that people who are recovering from surgery, who have a window into nature, require less pain medication, they recover more quickly. So so I'd say number one, get into nature. And number two, this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but really the number one um, antidote we have for feeling stressed out and burnout is actually doing something for someone else. 
And it's sometimes the last thing that I think anybody wants to do or feels like doing. But when you actually do something for someone else, like you feel a restored sense of time, that time famine that you're probably experiencing where you're just like, oh, I just wish I had more time. You actually get a time feast from doing something for someone else. And it also creates a sense of self-efficacy, like that, you know, you're capable of doing something that adds value to someone else's life. How does that intersect with the people like I definitely feel like my mother-in-law is one of these people who is always doing stuff for other people and will put her own needs to the to the side to help out everybody else all the time. And I feel like women particularly take on that role a lot. Yes. No, I mean, look, that's like an extreme version of that. And you often wonder when people in those situations, like what are they escaping as well? And I think, you know, sometimes I think in that complete, almost like, again, it's almost like a self-flagellating way is is there something that they're trying to escape in their own lives when they're so focused on adding like you're helping others but the the other like the flip side of that sometimes is i think when we're told to focus constantly on ourselves and we're you know how am i feeling what's going on in my head what can i do to you know be more me in some ways that it can take us on a like into this place of self-immersion and self-immersion often ends up with rumination. And so, you know, I think we're, we're often told like, oh, don't put on your seatbelt, you know, don't, don't put on, you know, put your own oxygen mask on before, you know, you put it on somebody else. And, you know, it's though these are, you know, either or decisions that we need to be making and that our lives exist at 30,000 feet above, you know, (laughs) above sea level. But that's not actually the case. And I think when we're doing like it's a both and not an either or. And then when we feel like we're actively doing something for somebody else in a way that is deliberate, that doesn't come with resentment or anger, that is, you know, by definition, like has agency in it. And then we're not doing it because we feel guilty or, you know, that that leads to resentment or we're not doing it because we feel obligated or because we have to, but we're, it's a want to, not a have to. Mm, That makes sense. So how do you know when to change, let's say like your attitude towards a situation, like you do your stress coping methods, you walk in nature, you do helpful things for other people versus changing your actual situation, like getting a new job or breaking up with your partner? You know, there's a range of, you know, ways we can direct like how we're feeling about something, right? Like you can, sometimes, you know, if you think about it, like you could situation select. And by that, I mean, you know, if you get an invitation to a party, you know, your ex is going to be at, you can choose not to go, right? Or you could choose to go. And then then you can what we call like a situation modify, like you could choose to go, but just not, you know, talk to him, you know, or talk to your friends. You could then also there's, you know, then you can direct where you're going to put your attention. Are you going to pay, like keep looking over to see what he's doing and ask your friends, or are you going to focus on something else? And then, you know, once you're sort of feeling an emotion, you can reappraise it. You can say, you know, what could I learn from this? Or is there another way to look at this? And then you can, a, a next sort of, the next part of that is you can suppress your emotions. And we all know, I mean, sometimes we have to suppress our emotions. Like if we're really angry about something, it's probably not, you know, productive to, you know, hit the, our fist against the wall or something If in, in anger. But sometimes, you know, anger, like suppressing an emotion is important. But I think the other options are, are better ways to handle emotions. And when people are faced with those, 
bigger decisions around like those inflection points, like, should I stay in this job? Or should I take that job on the West Coast? Or should I stay with this person or not? I think it's where you really have to kind of bring your values into the equation and think about who are, are the, the is the decision that you're making in alignment the, the, of the values you care most deeply about. And I think that sometimes, you know, what I advise like patients around big decisions like that is to even like fast forward six months from now and you've made this decision, you know, Imagine looking back on this decision and everything like you made that right choice to move to San Francisco, you made that choice to, you know, and your family's on the East Coast and everything's going really, really well, you know, or imagine it went terribly badly. What are the what are the reasons that it has? You really are making an informed decision about something and when you sometimes can do it from the future looking back and also considering like, what's wrong with this? What's right with this? How am I going to feel in it? And I think when you are consistent with your values, it can be a a really sort of powerful way to lift you out of your immediate emotions of the moment. And we know with like, this is something I always ask patients when they first come to see me is, what are the three things that you value most in your life? Like write them down for me. And then let's think about how are you spending your time and especially your free time? And I really like, like to like, okay, so what did you do on Saturday or how did you spend your hours on Sunday and like, write it, write it down. And people are often sort of taken aback by the gap between what they value and their actions and what they're actually doing. And I think part of therapy is kind of trying to bring those two closer together because the more overlap there is, the more resilient I think they will feel in their daily lives. What are examples of values? Like, are those very broad or specific? I like, I, you know, I think it's really helpful when people can get really specific and really bring their own values to it. But for example, you know, I really value my, you know, being close to my family. I really value um, my health. Um, I really value sort of giving back to society. Like those sort of, those values that really at the core of who you are, like kind of make you feel most at home. And that that's the kind of the person that you, when you think of yourself at your best, you are embodying those values. And so for them, like I, I, I really like for people to kind of generate their own rather than put them in their mouths and to be as specific as, as they can be about it. It's so interesting because that shouldn't be a hard question, but I feel like the world that we live in tells us so much about what we should desire and how we should feel that it's actually like I'm sitting here and I'm like, what are my top three values? Because I, I I don't feel as in touch with like the core of what I actually want and I actually value, you know? It's really interesting you say that. And I, I think I'm actually finding that more and more with people is they have been so bombarded with messages around what is important and what isn't that they've actually not been given the space or time to even like reflect on what, what do I really care about? Like what, how do I, you know, even sometimes one way for people to think about it is like, what would my legacy be? You know, how would people describe me who know me well? How would I want them to describe me who know me well? Or, you know, if you can think about yourself at your best, what are you, what strengths are you embodying and, and channeling? And it's a worthy exercise. And I think it, it, can take some reflection and some time to kind of think it through. But even if you have the space, I mean, I know everyone's got no time, but if you can even just take some time just to like write a, write a couple of sentences down or just like one, two, and three, like what comes to mind 
and why? Like, why is this meaningful to you? I'm, I'm, I will definitely try that. Are there times in life that you just need to submit to being stressed that like trying to get rid of your stress will just create more stress? Like when you have a newborn or when you're just started a new job or you have a sick family member or something like that, or do you think it's always worth trying to bring those stress levels down? I mean, I th- the, the thing I think sometimes in my field is that we sort of pathologize every type of distress, you know, and maybe we sort of leave people thinking like, oh, you should be happy all the time and not have any stress. And that creates its own form of stress, as you say. And I think the pressure in society to sort of be happy and rainbows and unicorns and smiley faces at all times is its own sort of form of purgatory, you know, because then you're feeling like there's something really wrong with you if you're not. I had had a patient who was really grieving about the loss of her grandmother and, you know, was feeling guilty that she hadn't kind of bounced back yet. And it was so, you know, her response, it was perfectly normal, you know, that she, you know, was having a really hard time. She really missed her grandmother. And the idea that that she was sort of feeling pressured to, you know, be, you know, back in, you know, her sort of like with her friends or hanging out and not like having those moments of just weight reshuffling from that place of thinking her of her grandmother in the present tense than to thinking about her in the past tense. And it was really painful for her and not just the grief for her grandmother, but actually I think the the, the pressure to be happy again. And um, I think, yes, as you're, you're, you know, as you were talking about earlier, that it's really important to, I think, use and understand and sometimes even sit with what's upsetting us or what is, you know, negative emotion. And, you know, as long as it's not paralyzing us, and I think you can take negative emotions as data, like, what is this telling you? Is this then a moment to then re-goal in your life in some way? I knew a psychiatrist who worked with families who, you know, were in the unfathomable position of having a really sick child and helping them, you know, navigate their, their, you know, their relationship with their child through this, their relationship to, you know, their doctors with this. And, you know, when it became clear that there was nothing more that the doctors could do, you know, how important it was even for them as, as the parents were understanding this unfathomable news was, you know, what, what do you hope for then for your child? What do you want? And trying to kind of like get them to articulate that, um, their feelings, like, I, I don't want them to be in any pain. I want my, you know, daughter to come home with us. I want them to, you know, be surrounded by family and helping them facilitate that. And I think negative emotions, I mean, that's an extreme example, can help us really re-goal and help us sort of figure out and navigate our way through something really challenging if we let them. I That's incredibly powerful. Can you apply that to like maybe a less extreme situation than that? That's like one of my uh, like, like heartbreaking situations is when people have a, a sick kid. Um, but what about somebody who is in a job that they hate and they can't leave their job? So every day they're just like stressed about work, but they can't leave their work. How would you, would you have them be doing this sort of re-goaling thing? You know, I'd really want to like actually think about then, because sometimes I think the stress like is this amorphous cloud that hovers over us and that we're not able to 
like we just sort of see the shadows and it's just darkness, but we're not really even quite sure. Like, you know, sometimes in the, like you're in a bad mood and you can't even remember why, you know, whatever that, like, you're like, I know something pissed me off. Was it that an email I read or like, what was that thing that actually made me feel not good? And so I think negative emotions do have this way of almost like an amoeba. They envelop us. And what we need to do to, I think, get some control over them is to be as specific as we can about how we're feeling. Like, instead of just being like, I'm stressed out, what specifically are you feeling? Are you exhausted? Are you disappointed? Are you frustrated? What is doing that for you? And I think when we can be more specific about how we're feeling, the actual emotion itself, it's like literally cracking open a thesaurus to get as granular as you can about how you're feeling. That exercise in and of itself kind of almost creates like police tape you're putting around it, you know? So it helps you sort of see it with more clarity and to think, okay, I'm really frustrated. This coworker of mine is just not, you know, working with me. And it's, and I can tell you the thing, the, the, the issue with that is that then I'm not able to, you know, get this project completed. And then I'm feeling like I don't want to see my, you know, manager who I'm accountable to. And if you can really distill it for yourself, I think you can also see then pathways that maybe you can change. Like, what are the things like, do you need to speak then to your manager? Do you need to speak to that coworker to resolve this issue rather than letting this kind of percolate and, and just, you know, leak into every aspect of this? But if you, you're doing that and you're being as specific and as granular as possible and you see like, you know what, there is nothing here that is going to change. Like there's no way I've tried this and I did that and I've, you know, I, I've even sort of taken a step back and I, I've like tried to like reimagine or reinterpret or even reframe what's going on. You know, and I think if you, you've been through that and you, you're not seeing any any place where your actions are having any impact, I mean, it's definitely then worth thinking, okay, time to re-goal and put my resume out there. And maybe where is a place where my strengths will match more with what that other place is looking for? And so I think that the, the, rather than just sort of, I think, immersing yourself or swimming in that dread and, and misery, you're going to feel a lot better when you start taking actions, either to solve the problems where you are or to, you know, change where you are. Do you think that the options ever aren't available? Like, do you always think there's an option available to make your situation better, though? Or do you think some people are just like stuck at jobs and they're not going to be qualified for a job that would make them happier or a situation like that? I mean, I think it, you know, obviously it depends on what you do and who you are. I do think we have this sort of binary bias in a way, sort of, people are good or bad, or this job is good or horrible. And to like, we will often sort of even judge our interactions with others. Like we judge ourselves by, I think our thoughts and we judge others by what they do. And it creates also bias in us. Like, well, I cut that person off in traffic because I was late, but they cut me off because they must be a horrible person, you know? And so I think, what are our biases that we're bringing to this? And there's a, I mean, I think we all, you know, our, our thinking can be really distorted. I think, you know, a lot of research has shown we're pretty irrational people. When it comes down to it, we don't make decisions like, um, you know, using our rational brains. A lot of it's so emotionally driven. Um, and that's a good thing. Like, I, I'm a big fan of emotions of all kinds and uh, emo diversity is, is what we call it. But if you're th saying like, will I, will that person be miserable no matter where they are? Um, 
I think you don't want to rely too much, I think, on your environment. Like, oh, I'd be happy if I moved to another town or I moved to something. Like your problems often go with you in some ways. But, you know, you're usually not alone if you're in a toxic work environment or you feel that you're not appreciated in the way or in the work that you're producing. Um, you know, you're probably not the only one thinking that way. So it's not, it's not happening in a vacuum that, that you're, you're, you know, that you're feeling this way. And if you talk to other people who are in your environment, you'll often sort of get the sense like, wait a minute, I'm not alone or not everyone's, you know, we often call it like duck syndrome. We often assume everyone else is having a really easy time. Like they look like ducks, like just cruising across the surface of a lake. And we Mm. don't see their legs pedaling beneath the Mm. surface like crazy, And I think a lot of us are ducks. And sometimes when you actually really take the time to have an honest conversation, you realize that, you know, people are having a hard time too. What about stress caused from something that you literally cannot move away from or change? Like I know a lot of the listeners of this podcast, it's a wellness podcast, have struggled with things like chronic illnesses. Is there anything you would recommend in that type of situation when you're literally in the body that's causing the stress? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, where I think the research points us to in that is what are the things that you can do that will help you feel strong within your stress? You know, and I think, you know, in, in therapy, sometimes I think we just try to get rid of all of the things that, that you know, try, we try to sort of try to get rid of things. And sometimes you just can't, you know, or we can dial down somebody's symptoms, but you can't get rid of them. But what I do know, though, is that we can help people feel stronger within their stress. And there's, there's a wonderful woman called Dr. Ellen Sachs, who is a champion of mental health law. And she she had a mental, like she was at, uh, I think she was at Yale, and she had a psychotic break when she was in her late teens. And her family was told that she has schizophrenia, that she you know, should be taken out of school. She should never really be stressed out again. Maybe she could do some, maybe she could work as a cashier somewhere, but they shouldn't stress her out in any way. And she said her family accepted this diagnosis, but they wouldn't really accept this prognosis that she couldn't thrive, you know, any way in the world. And she went back to school. She had therapy. She had support. She had other psychotic breaks as well, but she was able to go on to Oxford. She got a, a law degree, won a MacArthur Genius Grant. It's a champion of mental health law. And she has um, often described how people in in mental health would, would you know, they, they just don't want to challenge her or people like her at all. And she said the challenges and actually finding meaningful work has been this tremendous source of fulfillment for her. And that, you know, even she has a, a, a colleague who also is schizophrenic, who's in the law, who uses his law degree to, to sort of help um, manage the voices he hears. And he says, whenever his voices get loud, like, what evidence do you have for that? Almost, you know, channeling his legal background. But I think this idea that it's either or, and I think she embodies somebody who really has found wellness within her illness and finding these oases and sort of pockets of, of, of purpose and possibility and strength. So, you know, to, to your listeners who feel that there are chronic issues that they cannot change, that, you know, to be the, the coping strategies they use that are, you know, ho- hopefully ones that are, you know, helping them feel stronger and they know what that is better than anybody else and also helping them find, um, 
ways to to stay strong within their stress and you know whatever that is for them and i think that you know we can find wellness within illness and strength within stress in those little islands mm-hmm. i that's a i'm going to look her up that sounds like she sounds like an incredible woman. Is she still like doing work and practicing today? Oh, yes. I mean, she's a gladiator, you know, and just extraordinary. E-L-Y-N-S-A-K-S. Okay. I would not have spelled it that way. So thank you. (laughs) You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. If you have dry skin, this is going to be your holy grail. I've loved, loved, loved the Osea Andaria Algae Body Butter for years. It is so rich and creamy and lush, but it sinks right into your skin and it makes your entire body feel moisturized and not greasy at all. I actually do not understand how it's so not greasy and yet so, so hydrating. As fall approaches, I'm leaning into mini spa energy, these micro relaxing moments you can insert throughout your day. Because peppering your day with tiny bits of calm can have huge impacts on overall cortisol levels, on your anxiety, even how you sleep at night, and the smell of the body butter. Holy cow, it is pure spa energy. You get that like laying on the massage table, melting energy. It is phenomenal. I've gone through at least four tubs of this personally, and that is saying something because it lasts a long ass time. A little bit goes a very long way. I also always keep extras on hand to give out as gifts. It uses ingredients that you would normally see in face care products like seaweed, ceramides, glycerin, which I am obsessed with for hydration and think is so underrated, amino acids, even a skin-identical moisture complex. Also, here is a little tip. If you want to amp up its hydrating power even more, put it on damp skin right after the shower to really lock in all of that moisture and hydration. Like all Osea products, it's formulated with real seaweed to take advantage of its nutrient-rich benefits like deep moisturization. It's also vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Osea has actually been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And I personally absolutely love how everything is ethically tested and sourced. For clean body care that gives you skincare-level results, you've got to try Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code LizMoody at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order, and orders over $60 get free shipping. While you're there, get the body butter, of course, but I'm also obsessed with the Vegas Nerve Oil and Pillow Mist, both of which help so much with my anxiety. I love rubbing the oil on my hands and inhaling deeply before I meditate to make it feel more intentional and calming and grounding. You are going to want it all. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, promo code Liz Moody. This week's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, one of my favorite supplements. I discovered Athletic Greens, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, and they've been an absolute lifesaver ever since. They make an all-in-one superfood powder that contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system. You all may know that I am addicted to green smoothies, and I basically consider Athletic Greens to be my replacement green smoothie on any day that I can't make one or just need an extra boost. They're an 
absolute must when I travel. I honestly can't remember the last time that I took a trip without them and they are the difference between feeling good when I travel and that kind of like icky feeling you just get from not getting in all of your nutrients, eating a lot of fried food, all of that. Also, this is anecdotal, but if I take athletic greens when I travel, I never get constipated. I used to get so constipated when I traveled. Honestly, if you are ever having digestive issues or trouble pooping, drink a big old glass of athletic greens and then, well, you tell me what happens. Beyond that, for my caffeine-free babies out there, this powder is hands down the best coffee substitute that I have ever had. I know a lot of people think of green powder as a morning thing, but hear me out. Try a scoop of athletic greens at around 3 in the afternoon, right when you're hitting that afternoon slump. You'll get a surge of this amazing, non-jittery, clean-feeling energy, and it's actually real energy because you're fueling your body. As a person who applauds growth and change, I absolutely love the fact that Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53, 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habits on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. And can we talk about taste for a second? People always ask me if it actually tastes good, and I genuinely respond, yes, it does. It's faintly sweet, but not in a cloying or artificial way, and it's really fresh. It's actually a flavor that I've come to crave, both because it's tasty unto itself and because I've come to associate it with how good I feel after I drink it. I've pavloved myself. Whether you're looking for peak performance or better health or need more nutrients in your diet, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health simple, tasty, and efficient. And right now, Athletic Greens has got you for year-round immune support by offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you use my link today. I love Athletic Greens Vitamin D because first of all, many of us are deficient in vitamin D, especially going into these winter months. And second, it's combined with K2, which research has found helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together like the name of this podcast and join health experts, athletes, and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. I cannot wait to hear how you like it and how good you feel. Now let's get back to the episode. Can we get some of those like tips for quick in the moment ways to reset our moods in a moment of stress, like some science-backed actionable things anybody can do right now? Oh, like one thing you can do if you're sitting down, stand up. Oh, honestly, like that is like some of those, those like just postural things, even if like you're having a hard time at work or you're feel like you're on the brink of tears for some reason, or you're having an interaction, like a negative interaction with, with somebody, physically move where you are and move your body. Hmm. You know, and it's not even just like, oh, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and, you know, I need to wash my face or whatever, but actually just physically moving away from the moment that you're in will help you. Another thing that. is what I call like incidental ambulation. It is 
not jog bra, like, you know, you're going for a run, but it's just maybe being able to, you know, walk down the hallway or just physically move from one place to another that, that when, when we just a little bit of ambulance, like just moving a little bit can lift our moods. Another thing is our posture, which is so basic is, you know, when we power pose, there's research, you know, Amy Cuddy's research from Harvard is a business school is that, you know, women, we tend to hunch over all the time that we sort of bend in on ourselves when we're looking at our phones, our, our you know, necks are down. Um, and in addition to giving a smartphone face, as, it, as I think plastic surgeons call it, is it, you know, it actually makes us feel worse. Our moods are worse when we're sort of hunched over like that. So I think any opportunity to kind of, you know, put your shoulders back and sit up straight also is just an immediate mood booster. What about non-incidental ambulation or working out? Um, is that better to do? Is there like a best type of workouts to do for stress? Like there seems to be a lot of debate in the online community about whether you want to be really exerting yourself and kind of removing that energy from your body or you want to be doing more like a yin yoga breathing vibe and not stressing out your cortisol levels. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think you know what works best for you. Like I've really learned, you know, maybe the hard way even that my finger wagging advice, like this is the way you have to do it. Anyone uses like the word should, like you should, like we also got to like all have to stop shooting on other people and on ourselves that, you know, like, you know, what makes you feel better, you know, in, in that way. And I think that's, there's so much conflicting information because people do react differently you know, to cortisol levels in their body and feeling those stress hormones, you know, raging through them. But, you know, this is something that I didn't learn in medical school at all. And it was not something that was addressed in psychiatry residency either. You know, if somebody was feeling down or depressed, I would say, here, I've got a prescription for you. And, you know, we've also seen now studies that um, have come out of people who just did 30 minutes of walking on a treadmill three days a week, you know, did just as well as anybody who took medication. And that also even nine months later, they were less likely to relapse. And they're not jogging at like 6.5 miles an hour. They were just walking slowly. So I, I think no matter what, just being like that incidental ambulation of any form is is mood lifting. And I once was at a, like a, you know, I had to go back to recertify my board and like my board status. And I asked one of the professors there, like, you know, what about these lifestyle interventions? You know, what about, you know, diet and, you know, exercise um, interventions? And he looked at me like I was crazy as though he was like, that's for the social workers. Like, don't, you know, it's sort of like, that's the icing on the cake to stuff. Like we are doctors, we deal with people's brains and neurotransmitters. And, And I think we really undervalue this body mind connection. You know, like I think for a lot of People in in my professions, you sort of think like everything stops, you know, below the neck, and so much of what we how we feel is embodied. And I think there's a lot of research, like something called behavior activation therapy, and it's really it it really promotes behaviors to change how you feel because I think we assume the opposite that like how you feel affects your behavior, but it actually goes the other way too. Like what you do affects how you feel. Interesting. So what do you just think any, like, should you be sweating every day? Is there a baseline you would look for to get those results of stress relief and feeling good? I mean, here's, I mean, what the literature says is that, you know, those people who live long and well into their 100s, they never exercise a day in their life, but they move constantly. 
you know, they're constantly on the move. It's when you look at the, it's, it's, it's not the farmers in Sardinia, it's the shepherds because they always have to be, you know, moving the sheep around, whereas the farmers had much more seasonal work. So I think it is just movement throughout the day in a natural way. And so I'm a big, big fan of that. So if there's those days, like you really can't get to the gym or you're just not going to be able to, you know, work out in a meaningful way or without really stressing yourself out and squeezing it in, in a way that just doesn't make sense. And you just then feel so guilty. You haven't, then it's moving. Like if you ever, I mean, I haven't been in an airport that much in the past two years, but never take the skywalk, you know, always take the stairs. I, the irony is like I, um, my office is on the second floor of a, a building in New York and there's a workout studio right next to me. And I cannot tell you how often I walk by people who are just waiting for the elevator to go up to that one floor. You know, there's a stairway right to the side. And I think we're sort of often like waiting to work out or we're waiting, mm. you know, to go to the gym. But if you can just build in more movement in your natural day, I mean, it is if you can walk your kid to school or just get off the subway a stop earlier or take the stairs and move a little more, you'll be surprised how much better you're going to feel. And especially on those days where you can't maybe do that more vigorous sweat, you know, heart rate um, pumping, pumping exercise that you're going to feel pretty good and it's really good for your body. Well, I think it's about reframing what you're working out for. Like I think there's this idea of like does it count or does it not count? And if you're really thinking about working out and like am I burning enough calories? Am I losing mm -hmm. weight in this way or whatever? You want – like that's what makes our brains want to go for like, oh, it needs to be this big heart-pumping workout to matter. But then if you're framing it in terms of like this is cumulative, this is for my longevity, this is for my mental health, I think it's a lot easier to feel the benefits of those little interstitial movements. Oh, I think you're 100% right. And there's even research showing that actually our perceptions and beliefs about it affect how they actually affect us. You know, and so I think just seeing that from that reframed position of this is just good for my health and my body and my brain that you will feel a whole lot better. And it's amazing. I mean, I think our modern life is engineered a lot of that sort of incidental movement out of our lives, but it's not so hard to put it back in when we start thinking about it. Like there are so many opportunities, you know, even if it's, you know, walking your friend's dog or mowing the lawn or doing like those little things or, you know, parking a little bit further away at the grocery store rather than having to like wait and find that parking spot right next to, you know, the entrance. So I think if we can be a little bit more deliberate about that, um, or even going for a walk during lunchtime, like those little things that don't require sneakers or a jog bra. Um, yeah, we feel a lot better. What do you think about breathing and breath work? I've become obsessed with this recently because I can't breathe through my nose and I'm getting my nose fixed in October so I can breathe through it. But like I've been reading James Nestor's book and I know he, that he um, he recently did an experiment where he like closed off his nose and his stress levels like went up and his cholesterol levels went up and all of that, I think. So like do you think that we should all be trying to breathe through our noses? Do you think that we should be trying to do extra breath work on top of that? You know, I – I am a huge fan of James Nestor. And it's funny, you know, again, in, in medical school, you just, yes, you measure people's heart rate and blood pressure, you know, but, and, you know, breath rate is something that's important, but it's really, by the way, I really don't think we focus at all on, on how we breathe or how well we're breathing. It's something that's, you know, something that's happening automatically. And we don't recognize how often we're just holding our breath too. And, 
when I read that book, I was realizing I have email apnea. Like when I'm sort of waiting on bated breath and I'm, I'm not breathing and how much sort of more stressed out I feel when I'm not doing that. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they encountered some, uh, I think some like at least emphasis and felt better in breathing through yoga that that was one place where it has been emphasized a bit. But I've been as, you know, as per James Nestor, even mouth taping recently, and you sleep so much better. And, you know, you just like put this like little stamp size piece of that special tape on your mouth. And you're, you know, you don't wake up with that dry mouth. And I think you get like a deeper, deeper rest. And also just sort of reminds you to keep to, to, to nose breathe when you can, because you are getting oxygen more efficiently into your body. And I think we under estimate the impact breathing has on our mental state and literally in the moment. I mean, we were talking earlier about things that you can do just immediately to feel better. And I mean, you know, taking an inhale through your nose and a slightly longer exhale through your nose five times will immediately help you feel better. Do you recommend incorporating like meditation or breathwork practices into your daily life? You know, sometimes I, I think just like adding yet another to do, you know, to the to do list is hard. But I think what are the ways that maybe are there things that you are already doing that you could attach that to? Like if you are going for a walk instead of listening to music or a podcast, we're talking about, you know, temptation bundling early, early, earlier. But, you know, maybe is that an opportunity there to be mindful about how you're breathing? Um, or is it like as you're you know walking into your office or during the middle of the day? So I think there are ways that we can piggyback it onto things. I mean, yes, in an ideal world, you know, if you can take 20 minutes a day to breathe, you know, as James Nestor recommends, I think yes, that would be wonderful. But for people who don't, it's even can be in your car. Are you taking that time to do it, or you can, you know, do it and incorporate it maybe into other activities that you're already doing. Let's say for a second that we're just talking to the people who want to add things into their routines, either their morning routine or their evening routine or sometime, you know, during the day. Is there maybe a few things you would recommend as a daily stress practice to kind of keep people at a baseline? Sure. I mean, I think number one, I'd say set your alarm to go to bed. I mean, I think that that is, we're, we're really good about like waking up and we're really good about putting kids to bed. We're not so good with that ourselves. And I mean, I think when I say sudden alarm to go to bed, it's even kind of creating like a wind down hour when you stop getting news, you stop looking at your phone, you unplug it and you leave it in another room to help you go to bed. I mean, I think that is like just a very basic practice that can help. I mean, and, and then Again, I think going back to being able to spend some time outdoors, even when you don't feel like it, a study from Yale two years ago, um, I think said that on average, people spend less than five hours a day, sorry, five hours a week outdoors. And, you know, then I was like, well, not me, there's no way. And then you're like, wait a minute, like in the middle of the winter, like maybe that is me. So I think being deliberate, there's so many, you know, amazing materials we can wear even in the middle of the winter to bundle up and spend some time going outside. I think even if you had the choice between being in a gym or doing that, or even even better, doing it with a friend, 
I mean, we know from research that shows that people who exercise with a friend or play a team sport have fewer mental health days a month. They also feel physically better. I think there's something like the added benefit of the physical interaction and like the joy of the play that occurs in that that is like even goes above and beyond the physical benefits of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and also with, with eating, I mean, we know that just we feel better when we eat healthier foods. And just even a study of looking at people for four days being asked to eat the equivalent of basically Big Macs and milkshakes, you know, we're in worse moods, they have less energy, they can't concentrate. And it was so pronounced that even their significant others noticed. You know, so I think every time that we're sort of reaching for something that's like, you know, that comfort thing, or we think we deserve it, or we have like, sometimes, you know, it's called the halo effect, like, oh, I've just worked out, I can do this, then it's, you know, it's probably not going to benefit our mood in any way. And it really is like, not just cotton candy, it's emotional cotton candy, and it's going to end like, leave us feeling more depleted. Okay, I have questions about the scrolling thing and like turning your phone off at night. And then I have questions about food. So let's start with the phone thing. Have you heard about revenge scrolling? Uh huh. Yeah. I think that's so fascinating. The idea that like we, we almost like stay up in defiance of our days and like scroll at night to be like, well, this is my time and I'm taking yes. it back, but we're doing like the worst thing ever for us. Is the antidote to that just to be like, this is indeed the worst thing for you, Liz, even if it feels like something you want to do? I mean, I, 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 I totally get it because it is sort of like, this is like agency. Like I've got this, this is yeah. all me. <laughs> But, you know, again, I think it's masquerading, like it's a vampire of vitality every time we're doing that. And we're really robbing ourselves because it's really not fulfilling. I mean, don't tell me any time you've ever revenge scrolled and been like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I did that. You know, like you never like I really learned a lot last night. And I think like we've all developed this, you know, we all know what FOMO is of like and we used to really think about it in terms of like fear of missing out of maybe like social things. But I think during COVID, especially it got amplified Mm. by like fear of missing out on any news and this illusion even of like doom scrolling that I'm going to even get to the bottom of this and find out more information and see more videos than anybody else could possibly do. And then when there's that gap between sort of breaking news and actually the availability of, of actual information, like that we think we're all these amateur sleuths and can somehow mm-hmm. like get to the bottom of it and get more information. And frankly, we never do. It's only in the morning when you wake up and you like listen to or hear the digested version of that thing that you were, you know, trying to get to the bottom of. And it's really, it's, it never feels good to like, you know, tell me one time that it's ever been like, ah, oh, wow, like that light bulb went off in my head and I'm so glad I did this. And so, you know, it's, it is one of those examples, I think, where the, these companies are actually like getting the better of us. Like they're really tapping yeah. into our our weaknesses and I think our longing for connection and knowledge and understanding yeah. and and to somehow answer all the questions. Like uncertainty is such an uncomfortable experience and we've all had to deal with a lot of that recently, you know, and, and with COVID and not having the answers. But like that revenge scrolling or doom scrolling is not going to get us any closer to certainty. Okay. I'm going to go back to the food thing in a second, but I have to ask because this is something that plagues me so much in my life. Do you have any advice for living in uncertainty? Yeah. I mean, I think A, making peace with it is is a big part of uncertainty. I mean, I think that we can really help ourselves. Like, so sort of like it's an illusion that we sort of know the outcome 
of anything. But if you think about like uncertainty really being like powerlessness, kind of times lack of control. So what are the things that you have some power over? Like list those. And what are the things you have some control over? Like I can control actually when I put my phone away. I can't control really what time I'm going to fall asleep, but I can control actually when I turn it off. You know, so those things that we're often like feeling like, like I, I write about in the book a bit, like feeling like tumbleweeds, like we're being blown in all these different directions by other people's sort of whims or even by the way like the news is coming at us or by social media. And I think when you can at least like make peace with the fact things are uncertain and it's an illusion if you think you have like certainty about anything. And I think we actually have a lot to learn from like people who have, who, who um, I know Jimmy Chin who made free solo. And he's also a climber. And I was really fascinated by Alex Honnold, who really goes into these unbelievably in uncertain situations and, and then, you know, is able to navigate his way through. I mean, it must, it, he is stressed out, but it's in a sort of a superhuman way and the way they handle stress. And one thing they do is they really just they see the variables that they can control and the ones that they can't. Like he makes sure he goes to sleep at a certain time. I mean, and he makes sure he eats well and he makes sure he's so practiced and ready for it that he's sort of ready for anything then. And, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from people who've been sort of pushed to extremes about how they handle those things that they really can't control. And it's by, I think, really knowing what you can. So if I were to apply that to like COVID and be nervous about being sick, it would be learn what the risk factors are, do what I kind of understand will protect myself, but then yeah, beyond you, that, recognize there's like a certain amount of it that's out of my control. Yeah. I mean, I think we know actually research, so there are two papers that came out showing that actually people who wore masks, you know, who were... Um, you know, really careful about what they were doing, who were social distancing, actually felt less stressed out by by COVID. I mean, another thing, like we know that watching the news and just being exposed to endless newsreels of around COVID, um, even around like other tragedies or traumas, that just that vicarious experience itself can really like just stress us out. So I think being able to sort of turn that off and say like, this isn't helping me because you're not going anytime you're ever watching the news and you're listening to, you know, people sitting around like pundits sort of going off about like predicting what's going to happen. That's noise. That's not news. Nobody's predicting the future. Like I think the only news that we, that is helpful to consume is a digested version of what something that has happened that we want to know about. But I think beyond that, it's just an added source of stress and it's amplifying like our dread and uncertainty that and it's, it's not, we're, not, we're only sort of then getting to the illusion of knowledge. Like we don't have mm -hmm. any added knowledge from it. Like it's the human desire for certainty that's causing us to like watch and watch and watch or scroll and scroll and scroll. But we're, it's like acknowledging that that is never going to provide us with the certainty that we want. Yeah. And I think like the, like the opposite of that, and I think how some people react too, and especially women too, is I think they're so stressed out by the news and like, let's face it, it is disheartening, you know, what, what we're constantly seeing from you know, so the other thing is avoidance, like people are just saying, like, you know what, I'm just going to turn it off, like, I can't watch it at all. And I think that also can be sort of stressful in its own way. And, 
I do think that it's, it's human nature to want to be in the know, but you can choose where and how and when you get your news to just be really deliberate about it. And I think, you know, when, when you're doing that, that you're feeling like, A, that you're, you're you know, at least you're the captain then, like you're back in like the driver's seat of how you're going to be digesting it and not having it sort of thrown at you all the time. And even as a friend, like don't forward constantly to your oh, friends, God. like doomsday stuff. Like you are not- I feel like not- parents are weirdly guilty of this. Like my dad will just send me articles that seem designed to give me an anxiety attack. And I'm like, why <laughs> did you send this to me? I know. I mean, I think parrots get maybe a special pass on that, but (laughs) it's really not helpful in any way. And maybe just let them know, like, you know, share some good news with me. Like I've been watching this too, like share something good. And I think when we actually can at least maybe just prime ourselves in some way, like if you're going to share it, like just think twice about this. And, or even if you're going to post something on Instagram, like, is this going to make someone else feel bad? even if it's like a sort of bragging picture, because we know it takes 17 seconds for a young woman to feel badly about herself by looking at Instagram, you know? So if she's just, you know, oh, I wasn't at that party. Oh, there is that person I was dating with somebody else. Oh, you know, my life isn't that good. And, you know, I think we have so much perfectionism um, in society. There's so much perfectionism on, on achievement and accomplishment and also like social perfectionism of like, you know, wanting to do all the right things and, you know, be perceived as this, you know, as a certain like caricature of like this, this social avatar of the person that we want to be perceived as. And there's tremendous pressure in that. So, you know, I always ask people like, just whatever you're posting, like, might this make someone else feel bad? And then don't do it. I know. I think it's so tricky, though. I feel like there was a study. It might have been funded by Facebook, so like huge grain of salt, obviously. But it was talking about how much of a surge of positive emotions that we get by posting like those braggy pictures. So it's like I'm helping my self-esteem momentarily by essentially hurting somebody else's, even if the hurting is unintentional. Well, one of the things I think that we can all agree, and maybe even they would agree, is passive um, like social media consumption is like that's when you're just you're not engaging like you're not commenting you're not posting but when you're just staring at what's mm. going on in everyone else's life yeah. that that seems to be like a, a source of stress and just you know misery and a, certainly a vitality vampire yeah I, I I feel like that's true of so many things like I think the antidote to jealousy is creation of your own in almost any category, which is just a personal opinion and not at all professional but I found that to be I, true I in my think life. we can find studies to back that up and I think it's hundred <laughs> percent true because it really depends on like where are you shining the flashlight you know if you walk into a dark room or you're shining it in the corner and looking at cockroaches and that's because that's all you think you're going to see, or you may be lifting up that flashlight and seeing if there's a piece of art on the wall or a window to look out of, you know? And I think it really is where you're, you know, putting your attention and that attention deployment that we were talking about earlier is so important. And we're all, I mean, I think one of these emotions that a lot of like this sort of bad news and uncertainty can even tap into is around moral outrage. Like that is what like hijacks everything. Like anytime we're outraged by something and we need to vent and then share that. But I think, as you say, if you're being like generative or creative in some way, you completely defang that. And that's so I love that idea. I also think people conflate the two. Like I think what happens in social media a lot is that people are like, oh, if I post this or shout about it on the internet, that is my action. When in fact, the action is still the action. And 
you posting about it or shouting about on the internet isn't contributing to ending the problem. So true. And, you know, during the election, there were, you know, so many people who were so engaged and outraged around the national election and, you know, would sit, you know, scrolling through social media and commenting and ranting and, 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 you know, screaming at the TV or whatever. And then when you ask them, though, you know, how involved are you in your local yes. elections? Do you even know who, you know, is running locally, who your representatives are? Um, they wouldn't have any idea. And Which I think- is so w- interesting. Like, where does that come from? Well, I, I can send it to you. And the studies show that actually people who are engaged locally, then in, in their politics, it's, you know, in their town, in their city, that they, you know, they feel much better, even no matter what's going on on the national stage. And I think we all became these mm. sort of armchair politicians and so enthralled with, you know, this this thing playing out on the national stage. But when, like, and it actually, like, but we weren't engaged at all in what was going on, like, in our back doors and, you know, Which outside, arguably so. impacts our lives and the lives of the people that we, like, love in our community more. Yeah. So I think even that community engagement aspect, and actually, as you say, it's actually doing something and it's not living in your head and living Mm. in that place of moral outrage. It's really taking action. Okay. Let's go back to the food thing. I have a lot of questions about food. First of all, I feel like you're not going to give me a specific answer here for some reason, but I'm going to try. Is there a best type of diet that you recommend for stress reduction? I have found, like, just from my research, it's really been the Mediterranean diet. Okay, you did give me. I thought you were mm-hmm. going to be like, no, just eat food, feel good. No, like, I mean, I, food. I think though, in general, like that, that seems to be the one with the 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 best. Uh, at least there's the most research around that on its benefits for mental health. I'm sure there are many people who could argue with me or nutritionists who could be more specific. But from you know, I, I wish I could prescribe the Mediterranean diet. Mm. Okay, that's 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 a powerful vote for it. What about the relationship between stress and weight gain? Oh, it's very real. I mean, there is studies looking at people who even have a lot a lot of frequent everyday hassles with like and then 5 years later they're much more mm. likely to have like their waist circumference is larger. Um so stress, I mean, I if it's at a metabolic metabolic level that we're holding on to, you know, whatever we're ingesting that maybe, you know, is somehow limiting our metabolism. The mechanism of that, I think, is still not quite figured out. But we know that stress does, I mean, I think that it, it is, it does seem, we know people stress eat, um, and that's something to it. But I even think if you're eating the same as somebody who doesn't have that same level of stress, that um, you're at risk for weight gain, though. So is the solution to that just to do the stress mitigating things as much like if you feel like your weight gain is probably due to stress, it's not, it's just incorporating as many of those stress relieving practices that we've already talked about as possible? I would think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's certain stressors, though, that we can't, you know, get rid of, as we talked about. But if you can then be deliberate about maybe it with those hassles, if you can balance them or buffer them with uplifts in some way, that will create this buffer around you and help you manage those stressors um, in, in ways that I think you 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 wouldn't otherwise. I think the last thing you feel like doing when you're stressed out is finding uplifts. But I think that's probably the best way to do it. But also, again, it's in then making healthier choices around what you're eating and, you know, trying to move as much as you can. And that's also going to create that buffering effect around you. So it's like kind of, in, I guess, in your coping strategies um, and making sure you're not doing, you know, the opposite of the ones that would 
you know, help you feel less stressed out. What about stress eating? Like we've touched on it a little bit with the ice cream earlier, but do you have any sort of specific advice for somebody who just raised their hand and was like, I am a stress eater. That is me. Yeah. I mean, I think knowing like situation selecting comes up there and I think doing and being aware of, and I think there's a lot of like stress eating that happens that where it's almost outside of our awareness. Like if you go to a restaurant with a friend who orders something that like orders that like greasy hamburger and fries, sometimes it's like, oh, I'll just have what she's having. You know, it's like almost like when Harry met Sally that like, oh, we just like are disinhibited by that. And we don't realize how much other people's behavior actually affects our own and that it's sometimes easier to just kind of go with the flow and we're not thinking about like, oh, I really didn't mean to do that. It just kind of happened. Or the other side of it is we don't recognize how often like menus impact what we order. Like we're much more likely to order something at like the top or the bottom of a menu than something in between. Oh, they're we're, designed like specifically to trick to, us. Like, yeah. To lure us in. And they're also yeah. designed too to like, um, you know, I think even – grandma's, you know, home baked, you know, fries or whatever mm. sounds so much better than like grandma's fries or whatever, like greasy fries for you. So I think to be kind of aware of that stuff, and especially when we're stressed out, I think we're a little bit more vulnerable to that messaging. And one thing I do recommend to patients sometimes is, you know, if you know, you're going somewhere like choose beforehand, like make that mm. choice, pre-select what you want to do and what you're going to eat. So it just doesn't even come up. Like you don't even have to like kind of go through the whole menu. You don't have to sort of spend that time or be affected by what other people are doing. You're just going to, you know, you've already decided. And when you pre-decide, you're much more likely to follow through. And does the stuff we talked about earlier about like limiting access to stuff, I don't stress eat, I feel like at restaurants as much as I do just at the end of the day where I'm like, I had a hard day. I just don't, I want to like eat some sweets, some candy type food or cookies and scroll on my phone. Is that about just like not giving myself access to things that are going to make me feel worse? Well, absolutely. You know, at Google, they apparently had a problem that, you know, when you started working, when anyone worked there, you had like access to the kitchen and they would have this endless supply of M&Ms that people were just consuming, like just crazy amounts of. So they needed to deal with the M&N problem, but they knew there'd be a revolution if they just got rid of them. <laughs> so they got some really smart people to come in and they, what they did was they put the M&Ms, like they removed, they, they were in these kind of beautiful, clear containers that were, you know, right at eye, you know, that you could just like basically scoop, you know, the M&Ms out. And they put the M&Ms in opaque containers that were just kind of up on a shelf. Like you had to do that extra reach to go and get it. Mm. And they put then healthier snacks in like more like, you know, where you could reach them more easily. So they're much more accessible and in these clear containers and made it look really nice. And, you know, obviously then people were much more likely to grab that, just not to go through that extra effort of like, oh, let me go reach up for that thing. And it doesn't even look that appealing when you're not seeing them, you know, that glowing with their red, yellow, and, and blue, you know, brown M&Ms like waiting for you. So I think, yeah, if you can like get rid of the stuff that like make it harder to make bad choices. So if you've got M&Ms in your desk, like throw them out. I love, I love the idea of the opaque container too thing because I'm never going to be like, oh, you should never have a cookie and I'm never going to do that in my own life. Like I think that eating fun and delicious foods is so critical, but it le it lets you take that moment of reflection of is this going to make me feel better in this moment or is this going to make me feel worse in this moment? And that's when I, that's when I feel the worst about eating that stuff is when like when I'm enjoying a cookie and I'm like out having a picnic with Zach and I'm like, oh, licking like the chocolate off my fingers. I'm like, this is 
what life is about. I love it. But when I'm just like shoving food in my face on the couch, scrolling TikTok is when I, I just feel so shitty about myself. My body feels shitty. And I think minimizing the access and creating that moment of reflection is really helpful to avoid that latter situation. Yeah. And I think as you say, like it's actually when you're enjoying it and when we're enjoying like it in the company of somebody else, you know, there's studies looking at people, if we're eating chocolate, if you're sharing a piece of chocolate with somebody else that, you know, it's rated as tasting less good if the other person is distracted, you know, or looking Mm. at their phone. So like every time, you know, I think that we're sharing a meal and your phone's on the table, like we're basically like unsharing something and the food's going to even taste less good. And I think in a way that, you know, as Americans, we have such a complicated relationship with food. And there's an interesting study looking at people in Europe who were asked, or in, in France specifically, saying, tell us about your favorite meal. And they said, oh, well, you know, it was, there are candles, we're in this beautiful setting and this tablecloth and in this like lovely room and describing it and then describing the meal. And I think, you know, but and Americans were much more like, yeah, it was this good hamburger. You know, and I, I think that we have such a conflicted relationship with food and don't see it in that sort of larger sense of the ritual around like the shared experience mm. together. And that, yeah, it, it, it's very different, like shoveling like a box of like cookies when you're distracted and you're sort of half doing something else and you're sort of is like stress eating versus like when you're eating it and it purposefully by yourself or with somebody else that like you're really doing it for the pleasure of that, you know, mm. d- divine heavenly cookie. And there's something wonderful and loving and that shouldn't have any guilt around it. Like that's just the celebration of food and taste something that tastes yeah. good and not something that should be making us feel sort of guilty or self-loathing in some way. Let's talk about some of the relationship stuff for a second. Sure. What if stress is impacting somebody's sex life? Do you have any advice for that? I mean, it happens a lot and it's the way, you know, and I, then, uh, you know, people often say that they'll, they sleep much better after they've had sex, but then the last thing they feel like doing is having sex when they're tired, you know? So it, again, it sort of like goes back and forth and, you know, I think from looking at studies of, of couples who are, you know, happy together is that they make time, stress or not, to have sex. Like they will find the time. And if it's like when the kids have gone to bed or, you know, on, on a certain like typically it's, you know, if it's on a weekend or whatever, but they will make that time to do it and make it a priority um, in in their lives and recognizing that it's maybe not quite as much fun when there's stress going on, but that it, they'll sort of feel more bonded and closer. Yeah, I always find it fascinating how like when I it's especially when I get into like a dry spell, sometimes I'm like, oh, like the last thing I want to do is have sex right now. But then when I do, I feel so much more connected to my husband. I feel like lighter and happier in life. And it's just so annoying that my brain works in that way, that my brain can't like recognize the outcome, which is the same almost every single time in those earlier parts where I'm like trying to convince myself to do it. I'm like, oh, I don't need to do that ever again. I'm fine. And then I do it. And I'm like, oh my God, how was I not doing this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing how our brains just mislead us all the time in the moment. Like we constantly like mistake, you know, things that are going to make us feel better or happier, um, you know, and we think those things that we will, um, and we're completely wrong about it. And it's well, Groundhog really Day annoying. all the time. Why but does I think it do we, that? we know we're going to do this. <laughs> and I think sometimes like that's where we really have the power to override though our inclination. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I don't feel like having sex. I just want to watch TV or I just want to, you know, whatever, look at TikTok or whatever those things are. I just don't, 
you know, feel like going to the gym, or I just don't feel like this, and I'm going to feel so much better. And we just have to like be on ourselves and know that we can override it, you know, and maybe create environments to make it as easy as possible to do the mm-hmm. things that we want to do. But no, every single time is going to be Groundhog Day and to just, you know, and when we override it, we will feel a whole lot better. And I think, as you say, you'll feel closer to your partner and it's almost like restorative in some way. Yeah. And they say that like within relationships, it's that experience of, you know, invisible support a lot, like that sense of like felt love that like you're loved in the world. And even when like everything's going wrong, or you're feeling like there's a lot of hassles, and you're having a bad day, like knowing that that other person sort of has your back, and is there for you is so meaningful. And I think sex can be a big contributor to that experience of felt love that is, I think, creates this wonderful sort of buffer and armor for like everyday hassles. So in a nutshell, if you feel like you're too stressed to have sex, perhaps you should have sex. 100%. And just also, I mean, I'm not sure like with the audience. So one of the, you know, people often think that there's this intimacy desire paradox, you know, that like, oh, the like more comfortable you are with each other, like the less desire there is, you know, and so that, you know, there's everything that's passionate at the beginning. And then, you know, then people are too comfortable and in front of each other. And then that just dwindles. And there's there's no desire when there's too much, when there's so much, like you, you just know the person so well. And actually, like, you know, all the research shows that when like our partners like are just like when we're nice to them and they're nice to us, like that just like having that kind of everyday kindness embedded into our relationships and really being, you know, making that a priority in our everyday lives is that that's what fuels desire. I also feel like I think that's such a dumb – like it's an annoying thing to hear because I also feel like my husband and I have been together for, I don't know, like 13 or 14, like a really long time. And I feel like the more I've gotten to know him and the more I've gotten to know myself, our sex has gotten better because I've been like, this is what I want. We should try this. Tell me what you want. Like the the communication has made our sex so much better over time, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, it does. And I think when, and when you, when, when, and when you let it and it, it is part of that, but sometimes I think when people are just so familiar and so used to each other and they're not prioritizing it in mm-hmm. any way, I think the idea really around it is like, it's just like that simple sense of communication and being responsive to the other person. And even, you know, just being able to be like, oh, I don't really feel like it, but actually that's going to make me feel better. And, and actually initiating sex and, and, even when you don't feel like it sometimes can actually just bring you closer. And that when you are in throughout the day, even like those little, little gestures of, mm-hmm. you know, of kindness or like little things like, Oh, you know, your husband filled up the ga- car, the tank of gas because he knows you've got to drive somewhere tomorrow morning. You know, like those little things that you might, that even occur outside of our awareness, I think actually are such a powerful aphrodisiac, even like those little mm. things that go such a long way. Cause it's that like silent support thing you were talking yeah. about. It's like, Oh, somebody has my back in this world. You're listening to the healthier together podcast. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. 
I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk, and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed, and well, I was blown away. First of all, seed is not just a probiotic, it is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health, but prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating. Having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind like old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. I am obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey, and Seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to Seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. 
And if you would like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can go to Seed.com and use the code LizMoody for 15% off your first month supply of Seed's daily symbiotic. Again, that's code LizMoody on Seed.com. Now, let's get back to the episode. What about the flip side of that where somebody is stressed because they're single and they like want to have a partner, but they feel like they have no control over it in the, you know, from what I've heard from my friends, terrible world that is dating these days. Oh, it's, you know, it it is brutal out there, though. I have seen actually with some patients too, is they've actually been kind of intrigued by some like looking for single people who you know, or similarly on their own, who are really much more interested in finding a partner right now. Hmm. And I mean, I I think that there's been some sense of clarity of like, wait, maybe it wasn't that much fun, that thing I was doing or meeting Mm. all those different people and not really having somebody who I could rely on in some way and who, who was, you know, there for me and available for me. So this is, it's made them actually sort of, I think it's made other people they found on some of the websites that they use being much more proactive and seemingly much more interested in having a meaningful connection and relationship with somebody. So that's been sort of a positive of that. And even being able to sort of, there, an upside being able to sort of meet somebody on Zoom or have a mm-hmm. tele, like a call with them too, to kind of vet that and even not having to go through that awkwardness where you just know it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's been like something that I think even moving forward, once people can meet together, like that they're going to probably include a lot more of those pre-interactions as well. Um, And the, you know, I I think that there's a certain clarity many people have had around their values over the past 18 months or so. And that that's even patients of mine who weren't so interested, you know, in finding somebody who seemed like a little bit more so or someone else saying like, I'm just so grateful. I don't have anybody right now. Like the last thing I'd want to do is is like, I I, I just, this has been the last, you know, I'm really happy on my own too. And beyond that, would you say that it's that same sort of uncertainty principle that we talked about where it's like you control what you can control, you go on the apps, you put yourself out there, but other than that, you kind of like acknowledge that you meeting a person who's a good fit for you is out of your control? I mean, that's definitely a good way to think about it, but actually like it is, yes, taking those actions. I think what, what feels worse is just thinking about it, like, oh, I should put my profile up or like, you know, and what's sort of stopping you from doing that? And that would maybe even go back to like the whoop goals we were talking about before, like, okay, you know, close those intention action gaps. Then, like if you, if this is going on in your head and it's something that you fall, like you're, it's, you know, percolating in your head, but you're not really doing anything about it. That means tomorrow, like you've got to put up a, like, you know, a dating app and have a friend do it with you, like make it fun and laugh about it and help you find your profile picture or whatever that thing is though, but close that intention action gap. Because I, as we were talking about, I think when you're just, you, you were thinking about doing something, but you're not doing it. And it's like just this source of inaction that's often like goes hand in hand with like a sort of being a source of stress. And is there anything that you would say to somebody, like if you had a patient come in and they are like, I'm doing literally all of the stuff. I am on all of the apps and I am just feeling like crap and like I'm never going to meet my person and I don't want to go through life alone. What would you say to them? You know, I think the that like helplessness of throwing your hands up in the air, what is that, what is that doing for you right now? Like, is that a window? Is that information for you to be thinking about? Is that sort of what 
you are sort of looking for a a way out to think like, oh, I'll, I'll never find anybody. This is never going to work out. If you're thinking of it like this is permanent, this is personal, this is pervasive. I'll never find anybody. I'm going to be alone forever. You know, that like, are you, is this a, a trap door that you're sort of using as a way to sort of get away from the vulnerability of putting yourself out there? And even sometimes, you know, it's very easy to be dismissive of even somebody who, you know, I had, I had a patient who had a really hard time with like people who were, she felt were, were too nice because she was always sort of waiting. Then she's like, well, they're probably not that nice. And then she would sort of preemptively reject them in ways just sort of, she was convinced that she knew, as she said, like, I know the end of the movie. I know that this person's going to be this way. And I think we can get into that pattern of predicting how things are going to turn out. But I think that's often like information, like when we are predicting the end of the movie or like, oh, things are, how things are going to turn out. Like this guy's going to be a jerk or, you know, I'm never going to find anybody. This is probably serving some vulnerability and need within us or an insecurity in a way that I think needs to be unpacked. That's so interesting. I, I I think I do that a lot, like not in dating, because I've obviously been with Zach for since the beginning of time. But I think I try to predict the end of the movie a lot. And it's also interesting how like pretty much every time I've tried to do that, I'm, I'm wrong, but I don't file that away as like, oh, I was wrong every other time. Yeah, you know, there's a woman, she's the first tenured female professor at Harvard called, called Ellen Langer. And she said, you know, when sometimes couples would come to her after 50 years of marriage saying, you know, they were, they wanted to split and they wanted a divorce. And she said, nobody's ever come to me saying like, oh, I want, you know, to break up with my dog or, you know, my child or my plant even. And she said, there was this really simple explanation that with our partners, we're just, we think we can predict everything about them. Like we think that we can you know, here they go again, they're going to do this, and then they're going to watch TV. And then they're going to, you know, shuffle to the kitchen and, you know, get, you know, a Coke, and then they're going to do this. And how that predicting of and that almost illusion of knowledge of who they are, can really like, dampen our expectations, like that we just like this illusion of knowledge can make it unbelievably like that person so unappealing. And the thing about a dog or a plant or a child is we're always expecting them to change. Whereas with our partner, we think we know them so well that they're never going to change. So she's had always recommended, just look for something, like look for three things each day that's different about your partner. And if you can sort of find that, like that's the essence of mindfulness. It's looking for difference. Huh. I love that. I think that applies like universally to relationships. I'm even thinking with like parents, sometimes we get stuck in old patterns of relationships with them. Like I think with friends, like I think you can get stuck in a lot of patterns of like, this is who this person is. And I definitely know who they are rather than allowing them to evolve and grow in all of the ways that we are hoping to evolve and grow ourselves. Yeah, no. And I think it, you're right. And I think it does dovetail with like when we also allow for them to change, we also can allow for ourselves to change. And how important that is. And people change, you know, and there's studies looking at that. And and especially if you want to change in a certain direction, if you would like to be more extroverted, behave in ways that are more extroverted. And you will be if you want to be more conscientious, behave in ways that are more conscientious. And I mean, I, I think that we have these fixed ideas about ourselves and other people that, you know, kind of dovetails with our 
longing to pursue certainty mm. and to think that we know how things are going to turn out or will turn out or how somebody's going to behave or if they're going to remember to pick up, you know, milk from the store on the way home or whatever, like, oh, they'll never remember that. Or maybe, maybe they will. But it's just, I think our, our longing to be certain actually can distort um, our, our relationships with other people and even our relationships to ourselves. And actually, there's something really beautiful about them being unknowable mm. and also even ourselves being unknowable. And there's something wonderful about being wrong and being surprised, you know? Yeah. It's like, um, what's that? Like a chimera, like I'm pronouncing that wrong, but like I, I picture like we're all little shimmery balls of light that are like ever moving and effervescent and ever changing. Mm. And that's like really, it's pretty. Um, what about dealing with stress around maintaining boundaries? Like I have a series on this podcast called, um, how I learned to love my body. And a big theme of that that comes up over and over and over again is people dealing with parents that comment on their bodies all the <sighs> time and having to reinforce that boundary. And I know, you know, my friends who have kids have parents sometimes who are overstepping their boundaries around that. And that seems to be a big source of stress for a lot of people. So is there recommendations there? I think sometimes the biggest source of stress is like feeling our boundaries have been crossed. But actually, when the person crossing them isn't aware of it. You know, and I think our failure sometimes to communicate to somebody like this is something you can't cross. And even like recently, as people have been, you know, vaccinated, people I know of who've been, you know, out and about and one person like, you know, who goes in for the bear hug and the other one being like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not ready for this hug. And, you know, at one point, I think without, without like not knowing what to say, when this cousin of hers went in for the bear hug, she just sort of like stood there frozen. But like then she realized like this was a problem and she was angry and annoyed that that had happened. But then like moving forward, she's like, I just have this line to deploy. Like, I'm not ready yet. You know, and I think in a nice way that that like communicates your boundary and your warmth, like I'm so happy to see you, but I'm not ready for hugs yet. Okay. And I think you can, again, I think that communication of clear boundaries to other people is greatly appreciated. And then also you get to leapfrog over a lot of the resentment that can stew and just build up and accumulate over time once people are crossing boundaries that they might not even be aware of. Um, and, and then the question is, what about like people who are aware that they're crossing the boundaries that you've clearly laid out and they're doing it anyway? And then I think you have to situation select. I mean, I think you have to go back to that place of how much of this can you tolerate or do you want to tolerate in some way? Like, is this then choosing them to see them at very specific times or saying like, let's agree not to talk about food or, you know, my child's weight or whatever. I'm so excited to see you, but can we, um, let's, you know, I think that that's not a productive conversation. And I think when you can frame it in a way that isn't fully negative or hostile to them around like certain topics that you just know, or if it's politics, like let's agree that we're going to disagree. So, you know, for the sake of everybody, let's not, um, you know, bring politics to the dining room table, you know? So I think that it's, if it comes from, if the intention is one of connection and that you want to maintain it, they're met, you're, they're much more likely to receive the message. And if they, bring politics up at the dining room table? Is it like we need to just get up and go or what happens then? 
I mean, I think it can be like sometimes they probably can't help themselves, but mm. is there a way to kind of bring this in and be like, oh, we've agreed. And you can just say mm. to the group, like, hey, everyone, we've agreed not to have, you know, last time this didn't end well. Let's all go home still liking each other, you know? So you can diffuse it by taking control of it. And I think sometimes we don't, we're almost like pathologically polite sometimes as women mm. that we just think that like, oh, somebody else can bulldoze us and let this happen. And we can speak up and redefine that and kind of draw again, like some police, like, you know, you know, chalk around this thing that we don't want to do. And if then nobody's going to agree with it, I mean, then you have the choice of wanting to leave or not, but just standing up and marching out, like give them the chance to be like, oh gosh, I'm sorry. Or let everyone else help throw, you know, some water on the fire by agreeing not to have that conversation. Um, so I think there, are, it doesn't have to be so either or. There are so many mm. points of entry into like, you know, maintaining those boundaries or even reminding people of it. Because sometimes, especially like with older family members, sometimes like they just, it's almost out of habit mm. and they need to uncouple the dining room table with political conversation or something. And it just comes so naturally to them. So maybe it is, it's also like finding other topics to be, to choose instead, you know, like, let's talk about, you know, whatever is going on, the climate change, if that's not going to be, you know, also politically charged in some way. But are there other topics that maybe you can, I mean, one way, especially I think with older family members is asking them about their history mm -hmm. and their past and actually having, even if you have kids, having them understand who your family is. And it's mm. interesting how little grandchildren know about their grandparents, you know, at all. Like, yeah. actually, where did you grow up? Tell me about school. Give them the platform because I, I think they will enjoy telling those stories. Children really benefit from listening to them. And there's actually mm. research looking at this is children who really know their family's story, like the arcs of the challenges, the, like the triumphs, the difficulties, like the up and down are actually much more resilient because I think in their own lives, then they're not bringing to them this expectation of like achievement or success or mm. like, you know, that story of like everything turns out really well all the time that kind of, you know, every fairy tale has in it. And having that, and especially if they have the opportunity to hear it from an elderly person in the family about like how things were, were really hard during the war. And then, you know, then they moved here with their father. They used to help them with their mom. Like all those little stories, I think, help them get like a, a, a bigger like picture of life and pr develop perspective when it comes to their own challenges. Yeah, I love that. My father-in-law grew up during the Great Depression and the stories that he can tell are, they're so fascinating and you just need to like give him like a trigger word to get started. And he's like off to the races. He loves it. So it's it's really, and it's just such a cool insight into history that you can only get from this first person. It's like a real life example of what resilience really looks like, which like you said, isn't like fairy tale and rainbows. It's like stuff was hard and, but I made it and like making it isn't necessarily like running through the airport for the kiss at the end of the movie. Making it is this real whole human self that I'm presenting to you right now. Yes, I know, 100%. And that, I mean, I, I think that there there is such benefit in hearing like the arc of other people's lives and, and in a real way and not that like everything turns out well, you know? And and I think we really have to, as, as parents, and, and be cautious around the stories we tell our kids, you know? And actually letting them hear that you struggled a little bit mm. at times, that like school was really hard sometimes, or, you know, you, that, that this is how you learn to overcome that, 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 difficult period is, 
I think, really beneficial for, for, for them to hear that it hasn't just been rainbows and unicorns. Well, and we can ask that of our parents. It's been something I've been doing more in my life is like, tell me about a time you really struggled, dad, or, you know, like, how did you get through this period? Or what was that like for you? I think you can kind of prompt them that it's okay to have those conversations with you if you're on the other end as well. 100%. Also to the conversation topic point, there was a point during the pandemic, we were doing Zoom calls. And I think it was like around the election. And I literally just started bringing conversation starters to the table or to the Mm -hmm. Zoom calls. And they would be stuff like, you know, what's a childhood memory that made you really happy? Or like, what was your favorite movie that you were obsessed with in your your 20s or stuff like that, just like totally random. And it feels so contrived, but it was actually it started. It's almost like sometimes we need an extra boost to get out of these conversational grooves that we're in. And I think literally like Googling some conversation starters is not a cop out, like it's a very effective tool. Absolutely. And like sometimes, you know, Angela Duckworth had looked at um, sometimes, you know, thinking, um, uh, what was it like, would you, would you rather questions? Like, mm. would you rather be smart or lucky? You know, like that kind of thing. And just those questions that, yeah, it can feel sort of cheesy, but actually people really engage yeah. in them. And it's a way to kind of get to know somebody in a very different way. And they'll often surprise you, especially like people who you think you know so well that actually like you really don't. Absolutely. Is there a best way to deal with partners or family members or friends who are stressed themselves? Yeah. No, I mean, I I would definitely say, you know, if, if they're really having a hard time, it's, you know, make sure that if you, if they, you're concerned about them or you feel like they're just not kind of, if they're having a hard time in general, just getting through the day to seek professional help. But you know, going back to that idea of having, providing that emotional, um, like invisible support in ways, you know, and it was looking at a study of people who were studying for the bar exam and the, the partners who said to the students who were studying like all the time, like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Are you really okay? You know, sending that message of like, I really think you're not okay. And I'm really worried about you, even the way parents sometimes interact with kids that way. Um, that can make you feel like that maybe like you shouldn't be okay. It's like having a friend who's like, you look really sick. Are you sure you're not really sick? And you're like, maybe I am sick, you know? And, um, and so, but providing that sense of sort of that, that, you know, that you're showing up for them, that you're maybe like, ah, oh, you picked up their favorite ice cream at the store on your way home because you knew they'd be craving it or they hadn't eaten, you know, dinner yet. Those little sort of invisible gestures or even might be slightly visible gestures of support, I think are ways to be tailwinds for people who are having a hard time. And, um, you know, I think often we talk about people who, when they're having a hard time, how do we be there for them? And it really is showing up for them. And I think even if it's friends or partners who are feeling down, it's sometimes when they can almost be most rejecting or not responding to our text messages or not, um, you know, responding when we leave the messages or call them. But I think it's when we just keep showing up for them and showing that we're there for them and sort of just knocking at the door in little ways. If it's just a little gesture of, you know, I'm here for you. I just then, if you know, I know you're busy or if you know, when you feel like talking, I'm ready. But like I just send them uh, like a, a friend had sent another friend like a book that she thought that the person might like just to keep that to know that they're loved and to know that you care deeply about them and to convey that through your actions, I I think really powerful. 
So would like texting people, because I, I have a lot of, I live nomadically right now. So a lot of my relationships aren't people I can pick up ice cream for or whatever. I could do the book sending thing, which is great. But like would texting them, hey, how are you doing? Or like, how are you coping with X situation? That would fall in the first category of being like, you look sick. Are you okay? I think that can be like, it, maybe if it's like, hey, I'm thinking about you, mm. you know, okay. um, give me a call. And I think we can do like, you can do it over and over and over again, you know? And I think that it gets to like, just so they know that they're loved. Okay. And so whatever your relationship can communicate in that, I think is really powerful, you know? And even if it might be sending them a letter that they they might receive in the mail, you know, or just like a cute photo of you two from a period of time, just to know that, to remind them that no matter what, you love Mm -hmm. them, you're there for them. And maybe they're in a certain place right now or they're not feeling like communicating. But if you can make sure you're constantly communicating that sense of felt love and that you're there for them, that I think is, I think even when people are really feeling down, just knowing that you're there, even maybe on the other side of the door, Mm. but that you haven't walked away Mm. is really meaningful. God, I tried to write my friend a letter the other week and I was like, wow, I have lost every single muscle in my hand that allows me to write long things. I was like, how did I ever used to write essays? It made me really sad. Um, it's hard. So I need to work on that. I need to work on my hand strength to get back into letter writing. My, um, I had a friend whose husband just emailed everyone in like in, in January saying it's her birthday. I know none of you guys can be here, but can you please just write a note to her and I'm going to put them all together. And, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? And then I spent like 20 minutes one afternoon writing this letter. And I've got to say it was so mm. gratifying and fun and thinking about all these memories and and putting it on paper. It was hard though, because I hadn't done that in so long, but you know, I had to go through actually several pieces of paper. Like (laughs) it was, but it was fun. And, and like, I actually really loved doing it and I know she really loved receiving it and it stayed with me. And like, just thinking about it makes me smile. It kind of goes back to the stuff you were saying at the beginning, which is like doing stuff for other people is actually a great way to reduce your own stress. And I would put that in that category of trying to make somebody else feel good can actually be a stress reliever for us. Absolutely. And there's a lot of like research even around, you know, gratitude. And, you know, in the pop literature, we hear about like, oh, you know, make gratitude lists. And but I think we often get gratitude a little bit wrong is that we're making gratitude all about ourselves. And when we're Mm. expressing gratitude, it really has to be to the other person for what, you know, what you are grateful for in them. It's not that like, oh, thanks for that thing that made me feel really good. Like, what are you grateful for in that person? What is that about that person? And just writing a like, a line about that. And, you know, research shows that we tend to keep gratitude to ourselves mm. too often and that we're, we think the other person knows, and especially in our closest relationships, you know, with our close friends or family members that you're like, oh, the other person knows, or gosh, it'd be so awkward. What would I say? They'll laugh if I do that. And we're really missing these opportunities to actually make them feel good. It will also make us feel good. But you know, I think to to have this connection of, of doing that, and we we underestimate how like the glow that they will have from doing that and from putting it into words, and they don't care that we you know write the most sort of beautiful articulate letter, but just by saying that thing and what it is that we appreciate about them and why we appreciate it and you know why we admire them or whatever that is, putting it into words, I think is a really 
really powerful exercise for us. And then they have like the, the, they're the beneficiaries of it. I have a wall in my office that is just, I call it my gratitude wall where I just keep letters that anybody's ever written me Mm. there that it's just so nice to look at. It's like just this reservoir of goodness, you know, there and that somebody took the time to write something down, to find my address, to like write it down, to put a stamp on it, you know, and again, going back to how do you get yourself to do this more easily is make it easier. Like if you have some stationery, if you have stamps there, make sure you have like people's addresses, you know, it's those little things that then will make it a lot easier when you feel like I need to write that person a note. What are your thoughts on gratitude journals and journaling in general? Are those effective in the research or in your personal experience? I think it depends on the prompts you're using, you know, and I think is like, as I was saying about gratitude, like don't, if you're going to write gratitude, like, you know, journals, make sure the gratitude is other oriented and outer oriented. And also just for journaling in general, be careful about ruminating in mm. in it. So, you know, it would be thinking again, like, okay, think, picture yourself, like what, when, what, what are you like at your best? Um, what are your top five strengths would be something you could journal about. But I think when you if you are using it as a place to ruminate and just sort of get stuck in that place of why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? And immersing yourself in that sort of self-focused immersion where you feel kind of paralyzed and there's no way out and you feel like you're kind of writing the same thing over and over again, maybe rethink what you're doing and like consider the prompts that you're using rather than just like using it as like a blank slate to um, to just unleash. And I think the prompts can be really powerful in helping you sort of lift yourself out of self-immersion. Are there prompts that you like if somebody wanted to just like have a few questions they go with every day? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, what was uplifting in your day today? What are you looking forward to, to doing tomorrow? You know, what are you hoping? Like I'll often ask patients, like, what do you, like, what are you looking forward to doing this week? Like, what do you hope to feel when you come back in, you know, and see me next week um, in some way? And so I think being deliberate about seeking delight in your everyday life and even sharing that sometimes with others. There's this wonderful book I read last year called The Book of Delights. And the, the writer who talks about how he, every single day he chose, he found something like something ordinary that delighted him. It would be like a bird on his windowsill or something. And then he would write a paragraph about it. And how, you know, over the course of the, of the year, he realizes when he used his delight muscle, he was able to build his delight muscle. And when you prime yourself for noticing things that you become much better at noticing things, like when we're, our expectations are negative, that's also it's much more, it's self-fulfilling as well. And so I think our expectations really shape our experiences. It's like with the experience of dread, for instance, like dread is sort of different to anxiety because dread is usually kind of specific. Like it's something that we fear that's imminent. Um, that we know is happening. Like I always think of anxiety is thinking there might be a monster under your bed. Like dread is knowing there's a monster under your bed. And I think people right now, there's a lot of collective dread um, that people are experiencing. So one thing I've been suggesting and even like writing about is actually like be really specific, like describe what is this dread you're feeling, then use uh, some of those self-distancing techniques of what would um, like a fly on the wall say about this, or if a friend were telling you about what you're going through, what would you advise them to do um, in some way? And I think that that is a way to kind of keep your your dread at at bay and to feel a little bit stronger about how you 
how you deal with with your dread. And um, and the other way to deal with dread too is to actually use distraction, like you know, with something that can like uplift you in some way. And I think that those are sort of powerful dread relievers. But to even go back to the journaling aspect of things, think about um, opportunities like where did I use my strengths today? Um, what was a positive interaction that I had with somebody today? And I think when you when you know you're going to be accountable in writing for it, you're going to probably be much more likely to create it. Can you apply the dread thing just like as a really brief example to something like climate change, where I think a lot of people are experiencing a lot of climate anxiety right now, and it doesn't feel like there's a lot we can do. And I don't know what a fly would like say to me to make me feel better about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, like eco anxiety is very real. And even people are calling it eco grief, Mm. you know, and I think that it's um, the you know, and I I think there's a difference between I think people who are almost like vicariously experiencing it and not living in flood zones and who are the the ones who are actually like, you know, living with these effects and who are experiencing the the very real and concrete effects of climate change, that's like their real experience is very different from this sort of distanced eco anxiety that people are feeling. And I think especially now in light of that report too, people are feeling like helpless and hopeless in light of it. Um, But going almost back to what you and I were talking about before is that, you know, you single-handedly might not be able to change the world, but what are the actions that you can take in your daily life or in your community that is going to help you feel like you're actually contributing to helping and solving the problem in some way? And I sometimes think that in my profession, we're so quick to pathologize something like, oh, people have eco-anxiety as though that's something that's individual, that that person is so worried and, um, you know, distressed by their anxiety levels about this and that, you know, oh, we can maybe, you know, just prescribe something like actually like eco-anxiety is not something that we should pathologize so quickly. I think it's something that's so real and that if these like, you know, inflamed passions and concerns can actually fuel more movements in terms of what people are doing about it. I think like, how can we use that in a productive way rather than sort of looking at individuals and diagnosing them with eco-anxiety? Is that something that's pathological? Yeah, it's so interesting because with individual actions around something like climate change or global warming, I'm always sort of hesitant to be like, well, you should stop using straws because it's like, I think the real change needs to come from governments and big corporations making systemic changes to have an impact. And I think putting that impetus on the individual is almost a distraction. But if you reframe it as like your individual onus is mostly just to make yourself feel better, like maybe the straw thing isn't going to change the world. And obviously, you need to keep voting and trying to push for this larger systemic change. But the straw thing might make you feel like you're taking action day to day. It it can have validity, but it is something that I struggle with. Yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, in the same way that I think people who were cleaning like with Clorox, every package that arrived from Amazon, you know, that, you know, that probably that wasn't making that big difference in preventing you from getting COVID, you know, as we learn more and more about it. But I think when we, we do feel like we are taking some action, yeah. but yeah, I, I agree with you though. I think, yeah, no, you know, drinking out of metal straws is not going to solve a problem and it's an illusion and a delusion to think that it will. But actually when I think of taking action, it is more in getting involved in organizations and mm. creating that change on a, on it, like having, feeling like you are at least 
part of the process in confronting and voting differently and being mm-hmm. able to, you know, be involved in your community level of change rather than, yeah, like, yes, you know, if it's making sure that you're not, you know, using plastics and, and you know, you're, you're doing your part in bringing bags to the grocery store. Yes, I, I don't think that's going to save the planet. But I think your involvement engage, and engagement in organizations that are working towards affecting change at a policy level will also, I think, maybe help help you feel like you're being your your actions are at least oriented towards making a difference. That makes sense. Okay, last two. One, we've talked about this a little bit with the news, but I'm curious if there's like things you think a lot of us are doing every day that if you could like wave a magic wand, you would get rid of because they're just like us causing ourselves stress on a regular basis that we could just like swipe or uh, X out of existence. In addition to the doom scrolling and like our endless appetite for news, um, I would say to consciously uncouple, like this is just a little bit more specific, like Gwyneth style, like to consciously uncouple every time that like you are, like you're given a moment, um, like, you know, even if like your meetings canceled, like, is that, isn't that the exact moment that you like start like looking at your phone or even like, mm. if you're standing online somewhere, you start looking at your phone or you're sitting, waiting for someone to meet you at a, like a cafe that you'll then just like turn to your phone in those moments, like, take advantage. We actually have more free time than we realize. Like take Mm. advantage of those moments to just sit with yourself. And, you know, if it's, you know, if you're in an Uber, you know, instead of just like, look out the window, talk to the human being next to you. Like I always Mm. think of like the three C's, like if you can have a meaningful connection with somebody and in, in a moment, if it's talking to the barista, if it's talking to the Uber driver, if it's um, even, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a hairdresser. She's like, nobody talks to me anymore. They're just looking Ugh. at their phone. Um, so just connect with somebody, look them in the eye, have a conversation that isn't, you know, that probably hopefully isn't like about do your, what you're doom scrolling, but like put that phone away. Number two, I'd say is if there is an opportunity to contribute to something. And I don't think that means, um, going like, you know, joining the Peace Corps, but like if it's knocking on your neighbor's door, if it is just like, you know, holding that door for somebody, letting them, you know, in and a lane on the highway, like those little things are just Mm. so small, but they can uplift you. And the third thing is just when you feel like you are, you're, you're challenging yourself in some little way, if you're learning something, if it's a new word, or you're learning something that, you know, you can share with somebody else and be like, oh, wait, that's kind of cool. It's funny, like, this is so counterintuitive, but one of the biggest stress relievers of people, especially who feel burned out at work is having a hobby. And I think a hobby, something we don't really think about anymore is, you know, anything meaningful. I asked somebody a couple of years ago who I was interviewing, like, oh, do you have a hobby? And she looked at me like I was like, do you collect stamps? Like I was like some ancient librarian or something, but like doing something that you just do for the sake of, of doing it, something you love. Like if it's needle pointing, if it's sewing something, if it's baking, if it's gardening, something that you're not putting pressure on yourself to excel in, in any way, something you're even comfortable being mediocre in, in some way, but that's outside of your normal life that you spend time on. And it feels meaningful for you because that's where you'll have this moment of flow where you're just kind of not thinking about anything else. And you're just like sort of doing that thing. 
and time passes and it will give you like a pretty powerful boost. Like some people have it like walking or doing athletics, but I think there are many places to find flow in our lives. Yeah, it's one of my problems with the glamorization of the side hustle is that I think we live in a society where we've essentially taken our hobbies and made people feel bad for not monetizing them in some way. It's so true. And it's actually completely undermined like the joy around them because there's nothing yeah. like it's like the purest form of love. It's something you do just because you love doing it. And then you're supposed to now like be selling those cookies you're baking yeah. or, you know, whatever those things are that that it's it's actually like the moment I think we're monetizing or commercializing that thing, then you need to like that, then we're, we're stealing the joy out of it. I completely agree. I have to ask about the first thing. Uh, about kind of claiming back those interstitial moments to sit with ourselves. What if, what if I feel like sitting with my own brain will stress me out more because I'm afraid of what's going on in there? Oh my gosh, like <laughs> that's happened to me. That I, I once, like, I remember getting on like a long flight and realizing that I didn't have my book, <laughs> and like the panic of having to sit with myself for like five hours it's was a scary just place, my brain. Oh, my gosh, like that, like the, the nightmare, like, oh my gosh, I must have had it like looking around, like to see like, do you have a ma- like a magazine? Can I borrow your New Yorker? <laughs> you know, but that, like, the dread of sitting with ourselves. But I think again, like we, so I agree with you. And there's some people who do like even find like people will say, oh, you should meditate more. There are some people who actually get really anxious from meditating, you know, mm. and don't like it. And it makes their head spin and they really start ruminating, like, am I breathing right? I've never paid attention to this. Am I doing this right? Am I thinking the right way? But I think sometimes when we can just claim back those moments to not go into our own heads, but actually like look outside of yourself, like mm. look out the window, look, you know, what's going on around you, hear the the noise of the, like whatever's kind of people in the cafe, like what are they thinking mm. about? Like imagine yourself, where's that person from who's sitting across from you, you know, who's working on something. I think when we can use it as an opportunity to actually get outside of ourselves rather than to get like into that that downward spiral of self-immersion and like self-oriented thoughts, think about other things unrelated to you. I mean, I always think like nature is always a huge um, like vitality booster like that. But I think when you can just lift yourself out, think about things like beyond yourself, think about something that you, um, that like, uh, I always think, think about like some moment that you were at your best, but think about what's going on around you. Admire the space around you. What's something that you've maybe sat in that Starbucks a hundred times, but you never noticed before? You know, look for what's different. In the same way we're talking about that with relationships, look for what's new in some way. And I think that's ultimately the essence of being mindful. It's not by like being so self-immersed in our thoughts. It's actually like what's looking for what's new in the world around us. Do you want to end us on something that you wish people knew or understood about stress that you feel like we don't talk about enough? Um, I think that how can you use stress, I think, in a positive way, like figuring out like what's the good stress that works for you, that fuels you, that motivates you, that engages you, that galvanizes you to in, in, like engage in things? Because I think we sometimes think, oh, I wish I had no stress. You know, I just want to live on a desert island and actually that that's an incredibly unfulfilling experience. So like, what is the good stress for you and how can it like move you not to be in your head, but to actually take actions in the world with others and that help us sort of feel connected? Because I think that will get us closer to the version of ourselves that we want to be. 
Mm, I love that. Okay, I'm going to talk all about your book and how great it is at the beginning of the episode. But if you want to talk to us about it in your own words, I would love to hear that. Sure. Yeah. Um, the it really, you know, it, it really began with a question: is what is mental health? I spent a lot of time in medical school and in psychiatry residency, focusing on what is illness and what is mental illness, and I got really good at that. And I really want to look at what is the essence of a good day? You know, what is something we know we can get people to be a less miserable, you know, with medication or even cognitive um, like therapy, but what makes people feel strong? And like looking at research, it was not just the opposite of feeling happy. It was actually like engaging in uplifts, doing things that make you feel good and being in nature, spending time with a pet working on a hobby, being with other people. And these aren't just the opposite of feeling bad. They're actually the, the things that sort of help them feel good and strong and create these buffer zones around them. Because research shows we're actually pretty resilient, like the those major life challenges, but it's like the little things that really get us down. It was Muhammad Ali who said that it's um, not the mountains ahead that wear us out. It's the pebbles in our shoe. Mm -hmm. And I think this book is really about kind of trying to get to those pebbles and throw as many out as we can, but also then manage the pebbles that, and so they don't feel like they're pummeling us in the same way. Amazing. And that is Everyday Vitality. It's available wherever books are sold. And you are positive prescription on social, right? Yes. And I'm actually on Twitter, I'm um, at SamBMD. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You shared so much wisdom and I'm so grateful. And I know that my audience is as well. Thank you so much. I loved it. I hope you loved that episode with Dr. Samantha Boardman. I know it was a long one, but I really wanted to just cover every single possible thing that you could cover about stress. I wanted to like not leave any stress stone unturned. So I hope that you loved it. Remember, you can find her on Instagram at Positive Prescription and her new book, Everyday Vitality, is in anywhere that you can find books anywhere, basically. And I'm at Liz Moody on Instagram. So if you want to tag both of us, if you have any thoughts on the episode, as I mentioned at the get-go, we are starting weekly episodes now. So you can tune in next Wednesday. We will have a brand spanking new episode for you. We will have brand spanking new episodes every single Wednesday going forward. And also, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you would be so kind as to share this episode, any episode of the pod with one other person, I would be so immensely appreciative. This is the year of expansion, the year of growth, the year of the podcast. So um, I really appreciate anybody out there who wants to help me on this journey or wants to help me make that happen. I love you massively. Uh, in that same vein, I feel like I can't sign off from a pod with a be without being like, leave a rating or review on whatever podcast app that you listen on. So if you want to do that, that's appreciated as well. Sharing the podcast is probably like top tier appreciated, but then like that's like gold, triple star, blue ribbon. And then I would say that rating or review is like one less star right below, but you still get the ribbon too. So all, all is appreciated. Um, and I'm going to stop rambling now and I will see you next week. Next week, I'm so excited on the next episode of Healthier Together. I hope you have a beautiful day. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. 
Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra-HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot com and use promo code Liz Moody.